no one can succeed in this industry without some kind of advice, whether it's coming from tutorials or lots and lots of practice on their own or studying from life. But it's it's a very dedicated thing that you have to do. So one of my lines, it's like, it's like I say the same five lines over and over again. And one of the lines is, if somebody tries to tell you that their way is the only right way to do something, run. But I also do feel that knowing that it's something that you want to do even when it's unrewarding is really important. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Welcome to episode four of the Industry Standards Podcast. Today, we are going to delve into the world of VFX and After Effects, something that we haven't done before. Um, before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the podcast. So the Industry Standard Podcast was started with the goal to bring the best and brightest minds in VFX, um, animation, games, VR, you name it. it into a platform where they can share the tips and tricks, their histories, as a way to inspire and help guide the full following generations of artists. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy these segments. Make sure to follow, subscribe, like, share this podcast, because we are just starting out and every bit helps. Thanks to today's sponsor, the Ringling College of Art and Design's Virtual Reality Department. You'll hear more from them at some point in this podcast. My name's Anna Carolina Pereira. And I'm your host for today. I am a 3D technical and character artist. Those are separate. And I work at the Ringling College of Art and Design. And I'm very excited to be with Danielle Hashimoto today, a.k.a. Hashi. Let me introduce you a little bit, and then you can tell us all about your background and all of the wonderful projects you've worked on before. So um, Hashi is a internet Famous VFX artist. I think you are very famous. I don't know. Like, is that how people introduce you normally? Uh, he has a series called uh, Action Movie Kids. In fact, his Twitter handle is Action Movie Dad, which I think is so funny and cute. Um, you know, and he puts these kids into VFX movies, things like uh, at home on the playground, and they'll be like doing crazy lightsaber battles and crazy action uh, action shots. And he also does a series called But With Raptors in which they take uh, old movie footage and replace it with raptors, which is obviously like, you know, normal. I do that every day, too. You know, <laughs> I love those videos, FYI. And VFX and Chill, a series in which they do a lot of the back behind the scenes, you know, work when it comes to VFX. Um, to top it all off, just he started off from a humble background of getting started at DreamWorks as uh, lead of the After Effects team. Hashi, uh, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Anna. It's uh, wonderful to be here. And uh, yeah, this all sounds really exciting. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. what do you want to know? I would love to share some of my internet fame with, uh, you know, with, with your listeners. You know, there will be questions about that because... Oh one of the things that interests me the most personally, as far as like general, um, I'm writing a book, on, in fact, on this. It's like how to stand out in our respective industries, you know, and a lot of people just think that hard work is enough. And I'm here to tell them that like everybody who makes it in works hard, you know, but there's ways to stand out via social media, um, you know, making content and whatnot. So that's actually really interesting for me personally. I hope our listeners like it, too. Maybe. Oh, excellent. <laughs> so let's start with your background. What made you want sure. to get into the VFX field? Um, 
I like this is the same story as nearly every visual effects artist that I know. Um, I was young when things like the Star Wars movies came out and the Indiana Jones movies came out and all of the Spielberg and Lucas films were played constantly on a loop in my house and I loved them. Um, seeing, uh, I think what made me want to get into the industry was when I finally started seeing things like uh, From Star Wars to Jedi, which is a great uh, little behind the scenes documentary uh, made about the Star Wars films and uh, a, a great stunts of Indiana Jones um, VHS tape that I had that I would watch on loop because it was just amazing to me that one of the occupations you could have was being one of the people who put these crazy pieces of entertainment together. And so uh, because of you know, starting out with these very high concept blockbusters as inspiration, those were the types of films or effects I always wanted to bring to life. They were what I played. And uh, as early as I was able to, uh, I would use our family's home video camera to start making videos subjecting, you know, my siblings to action sequences and chases and stunts that they were probably definitely qualified for. And uh, yeah, it, it sort of went from there. I continued into high school making goofy films with a bunch of my friends. And it was at about the same time that After Effects was becoming more accessible to someone working on a home computer. And so we would do parodies of movies and add visual effects to them and lightsabers or laser blasts and explosions. And I had no idea that, uh, you know, 20 something years later, I would be doing the exact same thing. That is actually wonderful. So in a way, nothing's changed because now you still subject your family to making movies. That's precisely correct. So yeah, if you enter my sphere, I will subject you to visual effect shots. It's just uh, what happens. That is like super funny. I, I love that. You know, um, you were smarter than me because I was enjoying that same content. And I never stopped to think that somebody made the VFX and somebody made 3D models. Like for some reason, it just never clicked to me. <laughs> I never saw that as an option until I accidentally stumbled into it when I was like 19 years old again. Um, oh my goodness! Isn't it's, that crazy? Well, it's fun. It's fun. It's so it's it's interesting what what different people focus on on their creative journey. So that's cool. I mean, that's a really cool time for that fascination to hit too. I'd imagine. So it was. It was wonderful. So what would you say was uh, the transition from being a hobbyist to being a professional? When did that take place, and how was that like? Well, I went to. Uh, I did uh, end up going to film school, which was lovely. And uh, it's, it'll be hard to do a lot of this without just acknowledging that I was very privileged growing up. Uh, my parents were doctors. My mom eventually stopped being a doctor and became a kindergarten teacher and then a, a, a child psychology specialist, which was amazing. And during that time, I was very creative and not very much going to follow in what my family had been doing for generations, which were doctors and professors on both sides. And so I really wanted to creatively express myself. And my parents were tremendous about enabling me to do that. So that led to film school. And that led to the first time that I was, you know, quote, living on my own and realized that I could maybe earn money doing something that I liked. 
uh, via this wonderful classmate who was working at a post-production house and saw that I was putting a lot of After Effects work into my short films there and said like, hey, if you ever want to get, you want to do some like titles or something like that, I can get you paid for uh, like history channel work or something like that. And so as the side project, every time I would see this, uh, this classmate um, in school, I would get some little assignment for a show on Bravo or the History Channel or A&E. And so I would take that home and do that with my homework and he would bring me money for it, which is really cool. <laughs> and so just by word of mouth, that drew me into this sort of the world of like post-production, uh, doing titles and graphics for things. And as soon as I finished college, I really wanted to, I still really wanted to pursue movies. And so I had applied something like every summer that I was there, tried applying to the animation studios and the movie studios and never managed to score an internship during my time there, which I found very disappointing. And But then upon graduation, I was lucky enough to get a call from DreamWorks Animation who had me come in and interviewed me in five different departments. And the one that I gelled with the most was the story and editorial department. And so I got my start by getting hired to be the production assistant on How to Train Your Dragon when it was just starting out. Um, that is fascinating. Just like every other guest I've ever had, which is not a lot to be fair, but it's always networking or word of mouth that kind of slides that door open ever so slightly that helps people walk through to get that first opportunity, um, mm -hmm. which just kind of highlights the importance of that. Certainly. Um, and I never think of it as, you know, networking in the making sure that you're meeting the right people and going way out of your way. I've just found that, uh, and granted, this is very lucky that I was in the right pool of people at the time, but if you do the type of work that is notable to somebody and or notable enough for them to mention to anybody else, that is really, really wonderful. And it's a really good thing to do because nearly every paying gig that I had was someone who knew someone who knew someone that that guy does After Effects stuff and it's sort of neat. So uh, that's what was uh, really lucky for me was having a slightly unique niche skill, which was using After Effects to do visual effects work. And it works wonderfully for that, but there aren't a lot of people who uh, who still embrace it that way. Oh, that's super interesting. I thought a lot of people did embrace it. So what would you say is the mainstream way to do that? I do know that a lot of studios like to use, uh, use Nuke in their pipeline um, instead of something like After Effects. Uh, and after Effects is uh, is an older build in general. It kind of it feels like an older mentality of uh, compositing. But what I like about it is that it is it's like a it's a such a workhorse of a program. It gets down to the very very fundamentals where you can do anything from scratch to building your own effect to coming up with the final product. And I think that that process is really what I like almost more than any other part of it is just knowing that uh, I this this program has kind of welded to my brain in the way that I imagine and construct things and so 
because of that, it I've I've become very proficient in it over the years, and I like to try to push the limits of what it does. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's how I uh, what I get jazzed about in the morning is what I can accomplish in After Effects that day. That's super cool. That like I would never have thought of After Effects to do VFX, well, mostly because I never think about After Effects. I'm so removed from this world. You know, I'm from the world of games and VR. And I actually never opened my eyes too much to motion design or anything like that in VFX until I went to NAB next last year, which was where we met, mm-hmm. um, which was and, fun. Yeah, which awesome. is not to sell yourself as as an incredible artist, <laughs> short, because that's a really that, that's a very different uh, approach. Like it's a it's a really specific and like honed skill in, in arena. So it's the, it is the same thing as far as I say. So I was going to ask you, like, just because of my own ignorance towards your field, like, can you tell me a little bit about like VFX, what that's like? Is the industry, is it thriving? Like, you know, what's the situation? Well, there are, uh, yeah, the visual effects industry has a lot of uh, interesting stuff going on with it in general. So I'll say, first of all, what's really neat to me in the, just the geek sense is that visual effects are becoming so accessible to many people. I mean, even After Effects as a way to composite multiple layers of digital video together was groundbreaking for me. It was just so neat that I could film two separate things and put them together and tape them together with electricity or explosions or any other things that you could put together and layer things up the way you can in Photoshop that was just so fascinating to me and I love doing it. And nowadays visual effects are in terms of the technology are really thriving. There are so many huge leaps in technology that are being made all the time. There are traditional digital effects like avatar uh, that are coming out where it's the height of what you can simulate and how you can composite that kind of stuff. And on the other side, you have machine learning techniques, which are, at a very, very scarily accelerated pace, being able to create imagery that used to be very, very difficult to do. And um, so in terms of technology, visual effects is very exciting. There are so many different ways to represent people's inner worlds as something that you can see and experience on screen. Uh, The visual effects industry as a whole is very difficult because uh, one of the downfalls of uh, those types of effects being so accessible is that there are many, many jobs that you can get in the visual effects industry. Uh, you've seen Marvel movies. The, 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 you could build entire buildings out of the walls of people who do uh, the visual effects at the end of those movies. And those are just the ones whose studios were willing to fight for their names to be on screen and mentioned. And so anytime you see just the studio listed, that's fantastic, but also it still represents dozens, if not hundreds of other people who worked on those movies because a visual effect can take many, many people to put together. And so uh, right now, the the difficulty with visual effects is um, that it is not celebrated yet as an art form among the Let's see, what should I say? Uh, Film enthusiasts uh, have a a visual effects 
uh, or digital effects or CGI leave this really bad taste in people's mouths when it comes to publicity and promoting a movie. And instead of acknowledging the wonderful landscape of this art form, we minimize it a lot. It's sort of one of the things where you don't want to ask who, you know, don't ask about the people who physically built the building, ask about the architect. And so right now, visual effects, it, because of that, uh, the low visibility of the industry and the workers in it, uh, they are in a lot of difficult financial straits and uh, absurd amounts of pressure. And um, yeah, I think that it's it's very worth uh, examining as a whole how much we acknowledge that visual effects are a really wonderful and essential part of all movie-going experiences, whether it's a visual effects movie or just a movie that couldn't exist without tons of compositing, whether it's whether it has any dinosaurs or explosions in it or not it's really likely that you had a team of visual effect artists working really hard to make it uh, come together. That is so true. Um, I remember a story, like I, it makes me, what you said makes me remember a certain story and I'm sure you're going to know exactly all about it. Um, a lot of VFX studios will bid out for movies, right? And then end up bankrupting themselves. Um, mm -hmm such as I believe the most famous example was the VFX studio that did Life of Pi, mm -hmm. who received an Oscar and then shut down like the same week or something like that. It was very sad. Rhythm and Hughes, uh, who did that. And there is um, a, a wonderful uh, documentary on it. I'm forgetting what it is called now. Um, the It's not the Life of Pi, but uh, it's a play on the Life of Pi. And we just had it on the show, or we just talked about it the other day, and I'm forgetting <laughs> about it. Um, there's an online documentary that uh, you can see that spells this out very nicely, all surrounding Rhythm and Hughes and uh, and that movie. And it's uh, that same story happens a lot, a lot. And the stories that we do hear seem to only come from the people who made enough noise that their story could actually make it through. Because in the end, this uh, the publicity isn't good for anybody and uh so the fact that people have heard that the visual effect industry you know works on uh these razor thin margins and overworked people is is very good it's good to hear things like that the first time you hear something bad about an industry is at least the first step toward hopefully trying to fix it and embrace it um, and so if we move more toward that and less toward visual effects denialism aka movies like Christopher Nolan movies or the Top Gun movie or something which are chock full of digital effects, but do their very best in campaigning to not acknowledge that they're using a lot of visual effects. Um, I think the, the better offer will be. Is that like a badge of honor? Like we didn't use CGI? Like it, it seems to be, and it, it's, it's purely a public perception thing. I, um, there's a great uh, little YouTube video by Freddie Wong called uh, Why CGI is Terrible, Except It Isn't. Um, <laughs> that is a great uh, description of how many things in modern movies are computer generated or computer composited or assisted that people never notice or call out. But uh, it's very likely that the only the reason people think CGI is bad is because they only notice bad CGI. So so true only bad cgi is noticeable oh my mm -hmm. god i'm gonna write that down <laughs> it's weirdly accurate profound you know 
I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, you can watch the whole movie like, um, gosh, uh, yeah, like Top Gun, assuming that there were no digital shots in it. And then secretly afterward, during award season or something, they'll say, well, we did, we had, you know, thousands of shots in it. Is the VFX industry, okay, a, a lot of our industries are a little toxic when it comes to crunch, overworking, underpaying. Would you say VFX kind of follows in that trend? Uh, definitely. I think that uh, what it is, like both both visual effects and video games, you're creating this immersive world, and it is very neat that it's generally, you know, as, you want that world to be the vision of as few people as possible if you want it to be something really astonishing or unique or have a really strong voice but creating a whole world is a very complicated thing to do and it requires so so much help and so many people and so what i hope to take away from that is is if you've ever enjoyed a game or you enjoy specific parts of it or you enjoy a movie that you know had to have been made with visual effects. If you enjoyed that, uh, appreciate and, you know, advocate for the people who likely had to do that. Um, a video game has a really similar pipeline to modern, um, modern movies like Marvel movies and animated movies because they both require you to create lots of assets to have those things rigged, tested, um, played through animated sound design, texture, lighting, technical artists working on it, and a bunch of type of work that I'm not even listening because they're, uh, they're, they might be uninteresting or unsexy to see on screen what they've done, but the game or the movie wouldn't be possible without that technology. Hey folks, if you're enjoying this podcast episode so far, make sure to drop us a like, follow, and maybe even a review. Share this podcast with your friends and people that might be wanting to come into the industry or already in that might be interested in this content. This will help us grow and it will greatly support the podcast so that we can keep bringing you this content and even more guests. So um, what would you say for people trying to get into the VFX industry what are the most important skills and qualities for success? Um, I feel like there are several things. Um, one thing that I love about visual effects, as I had kind of mentioned, is that you can do them at home. You can do them on your computer. You can shoot them with an iPhone or any phone camera. And the there's a democratization of that kind of uh of the getting your foot in the door. Um, the next step is having available time to practice. And I think that practicing is something that I know is uh, difficult depending on your circumstances. And so again, that's, I do know that privilege played a lot of, a lot of that factor uh, into me be, having lots of free time to try to develop this skill set or whatever. Um, but I also do feel that um, knowing that it's something that you want to do, even when it's unrewarding, is really important. <laughs> uh, I think that probably speaks to any person who does something artistic. If it's something that you couldn't not do, then it's probably a good choice for you. So when it comes to special effects or re- visual effects, rather, uh, I think that one of the ways that you there are many ways to get into the industry if you just want to be a worker in the industry because there are a million jobs on any show. You can 
laser focus on something like rotoscoping or uh, rig paint out and being really good at repainting images to look like someone wasn't wearing a safety harness or someone wasn't doing something and coming up with your own techniques for doing it and being and taking on challenging shots so people will give you more and more challenging shots knowing what you are capable of. Um, the route that I went and some people are able to do also is if you see visual effects the way I do, which is as a, I know that the product is a bunch of pixels playing with sound on a screen that someone will see. That's the product I'm interested in. I'm not, I almost don't care about how I got there, what I needed to beg, borrow, steal, glue together or whatever to make it work. But I've just always been interested in that final image with sound and how it mixed and trying to make something that was surprising or interesting for people to see. Because it was something that when, I, when I'm walking around the world, I imagine just the stupidest scenarios. I'm constantly daydreaming and Walter Mittying through <laughs> boring experiences to make them more interesting to myself. And then when I go home, I try to relive and recreate them visually. And so that's specifically what my process is. But I do think that if you are able to tie some of your voice to your practice that you put into visual effects, um, you can establish a voice in a way of uh, what types of shots you like to do or what type of visual media you like to produce. Mine is clearly very childlike. I like dinosaurs and explosions, and I like to I like them to be in situations they should not be. And somehow that has become the most successful things I've ever done is, is continuing to do uh, this kind of a thing. So, so I don't know. It's a, it's a bizarre calling card, a very mature uh, seasoned uh, artist's uh, calling card. Um, you said something that kind of resonated because I have a lot of, you know, experience with mentoring artists and you said that the results like the pixels on the screen and the sound are the most important and it doesn't matter how you got there it's so common for me that my students and my mentees they think that there is a perfect exact best way to do everything and then they will freeze and not do uh -huh. it because they are looking for that best way when oh, at the end of the day goodness. the real thing is like the the final piece is what matters absolutely there is there, yeah, I'm sure Yeah, that you've talked about this when teaching, but there's no right way to do something. And there's no perfect process that you will cheat and you will take shortcuts and you don't need to be ashamed of, of that being a big part of the process. Because if your product speaks for itself or you can put something out that impresses or makes someone laugh or cry or be scared or think as neat that's that's the in in my opinion that's the goal is 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 somebody's reaction to whatever work you're putting out there and so it's a it's a magic show it's it's a it's it's a it's a fake image on screen like even if your product is a photograph or a video you are presenting it in a really specific way to other people and it and if it came out the way you wanted it to in your head then you're putting forth something that is is unique yeah, for the world to see. Absolutely. Like we don't necessarily like the Mona Lisa because we know how the Vinci painted it, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's not the point at all of the art. Form. But what if he used all the wrong brushes? I don't know, man. 
what brush is that? <laughs> you know, that, that, that artist oh. line. <laughs> uh, it's so true. And I try to tell them all the time. And another thing is that you said there's no, no one right way to do things. And there are people out there that will tell people that there is. Right. So one of my lines, it's like it's like I say the same five lines over and over again. Um, and one of the lines is if somebody tries to tell you that their way is the only right way to do something, run, run I out of there. Agree. 100. Yeah. yeah, I. it's so true uh, because, first of all, it's not imaginative. Right. It's mm -hmm. OK to explore and try new things and push the, the envelope, so to speak, of what you can do. Right. Absolutely. There's a, yeah, with your, as an artist, there's a, an interesting balance that you always have to do between it's, it's always worth acknowledging somebody's experience uh, when they come to explaining why they do it, something a certain way. But I had heard someone describe a, a situation, which I really like, which is if you ever run into a situation where you disagree with somebody on how to do something, instead of trying to dig into feeling like you're upset that they're telling you they're you're doing it the wrong way, just ask them why, and they'll explain why. And now, if you're doing something very technical, like somebody says, don't use that because it will ruin this, you might learn something new from that experience. And it's always worth having heard it. Now you have more information, and you can still make up your own mind. And so uh, just in general, if somebody ever says there's only one right way to do this, it's certainly worth asking them, especially if you, you know, respect their experience or what they've done in the past or something like that. Ask them why they believe that to be true and put that in your pocket because it can be among the many right ways to do something mm -hmm. and the million wrong ways to do something. And sometimes the wrong way to do something is what leads you to uh, the coolest product you could have. Yeah. I was finding that there's a lot of things that we hold to be absolute truths in my side of the industry when it comes especially to character art. When it comes Certainly. to tech art, I'm not classically trained in any way. I literally taught myself the whole thing and I'm pretty sure my entire pipeline is that like offshoot from the scent from the rest, <laughs> you know? So I'm not gonna talk about that, but in character art, like there's things that were like, everything must be this way. But as I look more into it, I find out that actually, no, there's more flexibility than you might think. Oh, you know? Certainly. Yeah. And like with character design, there are, I mean, I'm not, I am not at all qualified in this realm, but there are so many ways that character design has evolved over time and been relevant to different cultures and times and places that it's really, really worth noting that like Disney was very, very good at making 2D cute uh, characters that you empathize with immediately for a while, and that's wonderful, and it informed a lot of the way character design and animation went when it came to your main characters and everything like that. But also, a movie like District 9 can make you very empathetic for these creatures that are repulsive to look at from a character design perspective, but their situation is very realistic. And so um, I do know that there's the idea that if you, the more abstract and absurd your character design or your world is, the more grounded and relatable the the subject matter needs to be. And I think that that's, that's a more important lesson than um, 
yeah, to be a good character designer, you need to have studied these four people and what these several studios did. I think that it's much more important that you as the designer know what is relatable about your character and what you're relating through the design of the them. That's super true. I had never heard that line before about the more outlandish your character, the more down to earth the story should be. That's super interesting. I'm going to look into that. I think it makes sense just from the, if, if your goal is to be recognized in the mainstream, I should, I should acknowledge that of course, <laughs> is that uh, you want empathetic characters that people would like to see. Um, you could, you could also be very edgy and do, do whatever you want, of course. But yeah. if your goal is some kind of commercial success that other people resonate with, it's likely to be found in the commonalities that everybody has. Ringley Pre-College is seeking visionary VR students with the story and drive to succeed. Do you see yourself creating a three-dimensional, computer-generated virtual reality environment where users can be immersed within your imagined or simulated worlds? Is it games, training, or emotional sport? What inspires you to do this work? If this describes you, we want to hear your story. What excites you about these possibilities? Submit your 500-word story in writing or video by March 3rd to mmurphy at c.ringling.edu. Three selected entries will be awarded $1,000 each towards pre-college 2023 tuition. One selected entry will be awarded a full scholarship to pre-college 2023. In accepting the award, you fully agree to enroll in the virtual reality immersion. Visit www.fringling.edu slash pre-college and click on connect with us to book an online info session. And make sure to submit your written or video story as described above. Back to our programming. So uh, your action movie kids series, mm -hmm. um, speaking of mainstream, right, <laughs> <laughs> is super popular. In fact... I have watched, and probably you, the viewer, have seen some of their videos before. I've watched those videos on TikTok before I ever met you, Hashi. Awesome. And I never, you know, put two and two together. They just come across, you know, they're probably reshared by thousands of accounts and things like that. I even saw that it's been posted onto multiple, like, news outlets and publications as well. Things like uh -huh. uh, VFX artist dad put his kids in outlandish situations, you know, things like that. So, first of all, congrats on the success on that. It has millions of views, you know. Uh, oh, thank you very everywhere. much. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. How did that come to be? You know, I know you study processes to imagine fun things outside and when you're in the street and bring them home. So tell us a little bit about the concept, the, the construction of those videos and things like that. Oh, definitely. Well, uh, yeah, Action Movie Kids. Um, primarily, our YouTube channel is sort of the main hub of that. I have been slowly trying to adapt to other social media platforms, but really YouTube is sort of uh, where it all lives. But uh, my wife, Mandy, and I make these videos. Mandy is, used to work at DreamWorks Animation with me. That is where we met. And uh, we had our first child several years later, once uh, uh, we'd done the whole uh, getting married, etc. thing. And while raising our children, there was just a lot of imagination that we liked to keep alive in the house because we love imagining things ourselves. Uh, Mandy comes from a physical production background and liked to design rooms and spaces in her house that felt very much like uh, that would reflect whatever 
our children were into, whether it was, uh, you know, a, it was a cool circus team for a while or a more sci-fi stripey and uh, just embracing that the children bring this enthusiasm to imaginative play that we had either forgotten about a little bit, or at least it at some point becomes socially awkward to be so playful and, uh, and, you know, shoot laser guns at people uh, <laughs> throughout the day. But once you have children, uh, suddenly there's this wonderful opportunity you have to relive your past and pass on this torch of, you know, what is a lightsaber? What is all this? And so during all of this adventuring, we would be, I, I'm, you know, a, a very stereotypical Asian dad with his, uh, a video recorder filming everything that my children are doing and uh as a as a very adhd brained person i needed something to do at all hours and um one of them was taking these videos and adding visual effects to them and the main goal of that at first was to post them on facebook at the time just to get a laugh out of my friends like i look at this dangerous thing that my child is up to uh, my parents were not on Facebook, and so we started posting them on uh, YouTube because I, I could just put, post them on YouTube, copy the link, and send it to my parents. And then after a couple of months of doing these, um, somebody on Reddit shared one of them. I think it was called The Danger of Wet Floors, where uh, James is running along through a uh, a uh, little garden center and jumps into a puddle. And it, it was as simple as that. Uh, but it got lots and lots of likes on Reddit. And then the original poster, to their credit, let people know where it came from. And suddenly, from that Reddit stream, a million people flocked over to our YouTube page. And truly, it escalated so, so quickly. Um, my parents were coming into town the next day, and we were also asked if Good Morning America people could show up at the house while we were supposed to be picking them up for the airport. And so it was it was the weirdest, um, very very quick thing to happen. And of course the the sudden exposure from Reddit to news outlets covering what is popular online and on Reddit. Uh, made the channel more popular. And it's one of those things that um, is very difficult to predict or try to plan for online success like that because I was doing what I've, I'd been doing for the last 20 years, just making stupid visual effect shots and putting them out there. And this happened to be the thing that paid off uh, really well. That one of... Your son jumping into the puddle is my favorite, I think. Oh, thank you. And I actually came across it, you know, before we met. And you best believe it, you know, it was on TikTok. And I was like, I, I would come up to my husband. I'm like, watch this. I, I always have to show him TikTok, <laughs> right? I, when he's playing a game or something, you know, I'm like interrupting. And like, look at this. And he's like, oh, cool, a kid. Whoa, you know, it's always a surprise. It's a twist of expectations. So, again, super congrats. You know, a lot of. A lot of time working on something that lights up your hearts really can pay off. I think of, for example, people as well, you know, mm -hmm. who did the daily renders every day for 13 years uh, and accrued some following in that time until all of a sudden, you know, light <laughs> switch goes off. Um, and I think there's some degree, it's always the things that 
are the person's true passion, the thing that lights them up inside, the true like calling, so to speak, of the person. Mm -hmm. You can't force yourself to do it all the time if you don't like it like that, right? I, I think that's really, really true. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know that you had mentioned that you started, in, you know, more down the path that you're on now later in life. And um, I'm kind of curious what... Um, like, what would you say the like, what would you say is your central passion now among the type of work that you do? Like, what is the like have to do it part? Okay, it's funny that you asked that because when you mentioned keeping the imagination in your household alive, something struck a chord with me because ever since I could draw, like ever since I could pick up a pencil, I've been drawing. So I drew every single day between the ages of as soon as I can remember, two three years old to when I was like 20, every day, right? My main passion, like I, I would even get an itch in my hand and I need <laughs> it. I, I make this pose cause like that's the itch, like wanting to pick up a pencil, literally like I would feel this force in my hand. I want to draw, I want to create. And my main um, channeling of energy, I suppose was um, creating characters, not just their visual designs, but also their stories, you know, to the point where in high school I wrote entire books worth of notes of all these backstories and cities and religions and politic like politi political structures for my characters uh -huh. to live in, you know, things like that. Um, See, that's but, wonderful. I know, but there's a but. No, but as I got into the industry more into the university that I went to and I got more into 3d, uh, I feel like I lost a lot of that, passion fire that led to imagination and I went more the commercial route which happens a lot and we've talked about this like every Certainly. single one of the pros that I've brought on have mentioned something along this line you know of like losing or, or either losing or gaining your artist theme uh, mm -hmm. kind of like what what drives you what you bring into the art be it your own professional or personal arts or professional you know uh, and I lost that and I became results driven like I need to get this job or else, you know, I need to do this. In fact, the fact that I became a technical artist professionally instead of a character artist, even that shows that split in the road, mm -hmm. so to speak. And I lost that. Uh. That That's with mixed with like, you know, just not have the, the, the times that I was bored were the times that I was the most imaginative. Yeah, I don't know if you did this, Hashi, like you're walking that around, you, <laughs> you're imagining a crazy scenario and you start skipping. That's what I would do. Like I start walking oh, fast because I... Because I'm imagining, and I still do that that sometimes, but I feel like real life, so to speak, has distracted me from my original passion. And I've been trying to get it back by making art that speaks to me. And mm -hmm. to some degree, I'm I'm succeeding, but it feels like a mountain, you know, like, and I'm just like here still. You know, so I'm working on it. Yeah, uh, I have. I mean, I found that it's it's really important if you do know you have that passion to be able to share it with uh, the people who are the closest to you in life, your significant other, children, close friends, and things like that. So they really understand that this is a a, a big need of yours because it's the, the best way you can be supported by the people who are physically the closest to you. Uh, one of the things that I find the most lucky about uh, the job that I have right now is that uh, it really does allow me to bounce around a lot between different types of creative tasks. And in that process, I, it, 
I'm able to sort of dovetail my strong desire to be on the computer doing something, creating some sort of imagery. And sometimes that lines up really nicely with having a traditional job and promoting software uh, and, and and teaching people how to do the same thing because I love uh, passing on knowledge, possibly because I, I, I like talking and I, I, I am a, uh, I am a rambler by nature. So I have lots and lots to say about everything, but um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's really important if you have a passion like that to share with the, with everyone around you that you can, that you do have this thing. It can feel embarrassing and it can feel non-commercial or it can feel, um, uh, you know, it can be very difficult to be super artistic in the face of capitalism and jobs and getting <laughs> so up true. every morning. But uh, I think that uh, it's really worth letting, letting everybody know, uh, you know, don't hide it under a bushel, uh, you know, let, uh, yeah, really let people know what is, what is important to you so that, uh, they can consider that as well when they are giving you assignments and doing things. And also if they are your home support or family, so you can let them know how important that time is to you. And so it, uh, it doesn't go oh, away. True. It can be really difficult and you can, it can feel very selfish to do, but if it's an, if it's a necessity to you or an essential part of life, do it. It's so true. And not to go on a huge tangent, let's go on a short tangent. <laughs> Little tangent. Um, there is an audience out there for everything. Mm -hmm. Historically, we can't always find our audience, but now there's the internet, right? You go on Patreon, you'll find tons of people drawing anime characters or making a little indie game or stuff like that with like hundreds or thousands of supporters, you know? Um, so it's actually the best time to be alive, so to speak, when it comes to producing the work you love, you know, and being supported for it. Uh, and also, you know, there's free learning, there's uh, online support, doing what Hashi did and putting your work on the internet where it could be found by the right person or people. You know, my first job was the right person that saw a post on Facebook, you know? That's um, yeah, so it's it's a really important thing. And personally, I love the internet for serving us in our journey. It's it's the internet is more than just people getting mad at each other on Twitter. You know, uh -huh. <laughs> like look look past it. It's a well of opportunity for us artists. It really, really is. It is amazing how how much smaller and interconnected the world becomes uh, when you're online because it's it's everywhere yeah it's everywhere all at once yeah literally Speaking of which, that movie yeah. did well recently <laughs> such a beautiful movie um with visual effects made in after effects no really nice so cool really good <laughs> yeah i love that movie it's different everything feels so regurgitated nowadays which i so i enjoyed that movie much more because of that mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun um, okay. What impact has online fame had on your career? Um, it had a major impact on my career. Um, I believe that, um, so I was, you know, I had, uh, a kid with a second one on the way at the time I had been at DreamWorks for almost exactly 10 years 
at the time. And I felt like I was doing the thing that I had trained myself to do. I was getting up every day and going to a studio and doing artistic things for them and getting paid for it, which was great. And, and still on top of that, um, as you sort of mentioned, I had always had, if you have that thing that's just, you know, like in the back of your mind that you really, really want to do, uh, it's very difficult to lose that. And for me, it was apparently this very, you know, childish mixing imagination with real life thing that I'd always really enjoyed doing. Um, and that opportunity presented itself so strongly when I had James around to make cool videos and, um, because of all that, uh, when Action Movie Kid became successful, at first I thought it was going to be a really cool month where I was popular on Reddit and I was excited for these 15 minutes of fame for this, you know, this industry that I had been working really hard in for decades. Um, it, it was neat that my portfolio of sorts, of my personal work was getting out there and enjoyable to people. Um, but as I kept this hobby up, um, it was successful enough that I had to go, uh, you know, make a little separation of, of DreamWorks work and my YouTube channel and establish in writing with the, the difference. Because if you're working at a creative studio, when you come up with something, there are lots of, uh, it can be tricky. And so uh, once the, so one foot was in this action movie kid world and one was in my DreamWorks animation world. And it seemed so foolish to me to believe that the YouTube one could ever win, but it provided so many opportunities like getting to direct like 40 commercials for Toys R Us. Uh, and because of that, getting an agent uh, to represent me as a director and then present a bunch of other opportunities to me. And uh, it was really fun to have an agency. I felt so silly and stupidly important <laughs> for having this successful YouTube channel um, that it provided me with enough opportunities that I eventually said, well, I wouldn't ever quit my job unless it provides all of these things that my job provides because I'm an adult and I know what, what you need to survive. Yeah. And remarkably, they laid out the case that it really would. And so um, the internet fame allowed me to leave my job. Uh, and I, I have worked uh, at home, generally doing projects that I like and get to come up with on my own pretty much ever since. And this was a good, you know, uh, almost 10 years ago now. So it's it's been really, really nice that uh, the online success allowed me to have my own voice be the primary thing that I was trying to direct at creative projects. Even when I'm working with Red Giant or Maxon, it's really wonderful that, uh, that they respect uh, the artist behind that. So yeah, it's exciting. Um. So between working for yourself only and working for Maxon, like how did that relationship begin that you decided to go back to work full time? So that was a, a very long, uh, long process. Um, we, uh, even back when I was working at DreamWorks, uh, I decided that I knew that I had 
seen a lot of Red Giant tutorials and really loved using trap code products. I used them on the Kung Fu Panda movies and I got to uh, use them in my work nearly every day there just because it was the coolest 3D particle system you could have. And so at some point I just decided to email the, the Red Giant people because they were very accessible online. And I was like, hey, by the way, I love your products and I use them all the time, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it just so happened that uh, Aaron Rabinowitz, who had done so many of the tutorials I had learned After Effects from, uh, was working at Red Giant at the time and responded to my email within like seconds. Like, I don't even know how he had time to write this, but he was like, I'm going to be in LA next week. Uh, I would love to come by and see you. And, and so uh, starting then, I ended up meeting Aaron the next uh, week or something like that and stayed in good contact with. Aaron, and then when Seth Worley, who's the director who's worked with them to make really incredible short films and also now works with me in Maxon, um, was was moving to LA and we just sort of all became friends constantly talking about projects they were doing, projects I was doing. I was still doing the studio job, but I was slowly moving into just the world of YouTube. And once I was in the YouTube world, every now and then I would do something with one of their products. And so I would mention to Aaron, like, hey, if you want to you know, promote a thing with one of these videos, do that. And probably once a month, Aaron would call and say like, hey, you should work for us. Like we could, you know, come work for us. And uh, after about two years of that, I eventually decided to take a part-time job working for Red Giant uh, after proposing what I thought would be fun because it would keep my, uh, I knew that I didn't want to do the same thing every day. I wanted it to be, something where I could figure out how to chase the next creative itch I have and have a good excuse to do it. And Aaron really created that for me at Red Giant. And I know that uh, he had done the same for Seth Worley and our paths just sort of kind of kept on heading toward each other, which led to uh, our job now at Maxon where Seth and I uh, make that But for Raptors series and the VFX and Chill show and it's the most absurd and wonderful uh, thing that I am so grateful for uh, the bizarre. It would be so difficult to explain to somebody what we get to do. Um, but uh, yeah, it is because of our combined ridiculous histories. <laughs> destiny, <laughs> fun, ridiculous VFX destiny. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so nice. Um, do you have any advice for new people trying to, make a name for themselves online with their art, whatever it may be. Um, it, yeah, harkening back to something we said earlier, just, it really, there is no right way to do anything. Um, but I think that it is really valuable to share anything you make, share, share as often as you can and get comfortable with sharing, accepting feedback. And at the same time, uh, be comfortable asking for help when you need it. It's something that a lot of people are really afraid to do, but no one can succeed in this industry without, without some kind of advice, whether it's coming from tutorials or from lots and lots of practice on their own or studying from life. But it's, it's a very dedicated thing that you have to do. And I think that it's really worth being vocal in those situations. If you love tutorials, tell the people who make those tutorials that you love them and that you're interested in what they're doing. 
share the work that you make with people online because as we've mentioned the internet is a really wonderful way that the larger world can feel a lot smaller and your work can travel a lot further as a result so share what you make early on and try to uh, and just slowly steer yourself toward the things that you enjoy doing the most because if you don't know now what is the type of art or the thing that you couldn't live without doing uh doing a bunch of stuff and posting stuff online will steer you there pretty quickly honestly you'll figure out what you like about it what you don't like about it and find that you have this uh pull towards something or other and i have no idea what that'll be but it's really exciting to just to try it don't yeah, I'm I'm so rambly about this stuff. But <laughs> honestly, just do stuff, finish stuff and move on, share it and move on to the next thing. Oh, I'm going to print this out and put it behind me when I'm having mentorship meetings. You don't have you a know? big enough wall, my gosh. <laughs> because I say the same thing all the time, right? Um, one thing that I wish all my students and mentees understood is that putting your work on the internet or anywhere for that matter is by default naturally a vulnerable thing to do right? It's vulnerable. It's scary. You don't know who's seeing it. You might get negative feedback. You might get a, a troll or two. You know, it's it's part of this process. It's worth it. And you don't have to wait until you're so good that nobody can ignore you. You have to start now. I think back, like I, I wanted to get into social media when I was like 20 and I couldn't make myself. So I lost out on like more years than I've been doing it. <laughs> you know, that I could have been, imagine how much I could be posting and doing and learning and, and the people I could have met in that time, you know. So be vulnerable. People, as they find you on social media, the growth is slow at the beginning. It's exponential, so it gets faster as it gets faster. But um, they're going to grow with you. People like a little vulnerable moments or relatable moments or even crappy art. Guys, like, <laughs> it's fine. Like, take a chance. Put your work out there. I have so many mentees that specifically ask me this one thing. They're like, I'm ready to start freelancing. I put my five portfolio pieces on ArtStation. Why is the phone not ringing? Right? Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, uh, you actually have to come up with a posting schedule. Like, how are you, they supposed to find you? That's why all the, these awesome opportunities are going to the findable people. Visibility matters, right? Doesn't mean they're necessarily better than you. It doesn't mean that at all. They're just easier to find. People are lazy, you know? They're not going to scroll through every single 3D artist Twitter account to find you. Absolutely. Yeah, being being visible is quite important. And there is a big element of spectacle or, or, or whatever you'd want to call it that it has to go into uh, what you do. I, I think that it's really... At, the more and more you post the more you will find out something surprising might have been the most successful thing that you've posted. <laughs> and first of all, it's really cool. And what's good to learn from that is that people liked that thing you were doing. If it isn't what you love doing, don't chase that. It's, it's really not worth chasing approval online uh, because I've done plenty of approval chasing and it is never as genuine as just some something that you really enjoyed doing. So uh, yeah, use the community to try to learn what is your most passionate thing. And as people see that story and you are findable for that reason, 
yeah, it'll be a lot better than some really finely honed portfolio that will, that, yeah, offers very little for people to see compared to your whole creative journey and what you're into, where this person is really good at this type of character or this type of effect shot or this type of thing. So yeah, you can make a name for yourself, even if it feels very small. Uh, Hashi, what would you say that sets really successful VFX artists apart from the ones that maybe don't quite make it or seem to struggle in the industry? I believe that uh, the people that I know who have been successful in the visual effects industry are uh, people like Todd Vaziri or Stu Mashwitz who, who really almost couldn't exist without being able to understand and be curious about as many things as possible. Uh, if you ever interact with Stu Mashwitz, you will realize that it is that somehow that man has this immeasurable amount of knowledge about anything you may casually drop in a conversation and you will be made to feel like the uh, like the stuttering baby who doesn't know anything about whatever it is about the the history of why pens work the way they do or something like that. And what I think, and that is all to say that there, if you're always, if you're always curious about how things work, you will continue this process of investigation and thereby creation of different techniques and ways to do things. And so being a problem solver in life uh, really leads to being a good problem solver in a technical skill like visual effects, uh, knowing that you can really force a program like After Effects, which originally wasn't designed to do feature visual effects. Uh, someone like Stu figured out how to force it to do visual effects on Men in Black. Uh, and, and it was because he knew that that would be the fastest way to do something that wasn't even considered to be done on a computer like that. But uh, he proposed that it could. And like, lo and behold, like that is, that is the right type of thinking you need in an industry like that. Because uh, if he had questioned you know, what is the right way to do this or how should we, or should we even do something like this? Um, all of the giving into a lot of that kind of doubt instead of uh, sort of, you know, barreling ahead is what will, uh, can slow you down or can make you think if there's only one right way to do this, I might become really good at this one thing. But if you're not curious about the other things, then you may not become a, an all-around visual effects uh, leader when it comes to trying to establish the way to do something or to come up with a new way to represent something. And so successful visual effects artist is a weird, um, is a little bit of a weird term because it depends on what you mean. Like, do you become a, is it someone who can become a supervisor? Is it someone who's really good at communicating their ideas to other people, so many other people can uh, work on the same vision or anything like that. But I think at least to me, the most successful and fascinating people are the curious. Yeah, that makes total sense. The ones that could uh, teach the others or even write entire books, publications about their their findings. Mm -hmm. I know I have a, like a ton of books back here that are by similar people, you know, in different industries that have created their own way of thinking and of doing things that are now teaching us and inspiring us. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So be curious. There are a lot of inspirational people out there that do really cool things. There's something to learn from all of them. That's for certain. Can you talk a little bit about some of the maybe one or two biggest challenges you've had in your career and generally your time as an artist and how you overcame it? Definitely. Um, one of the, the first professional challenges I had was when I was working at DreamWorks, uh, my, it, as I mentioned, my first job was a production assistant in the story and editorial department. Um, a big studio has to get so many people to do things that is that standardization is really important and processes are really important and difficult to change because especially in an animated film or like a video game, you are literally creating everything that is going to be on screen. So you're creating the environments, the worlds, the characters, animating them, making them do what they need, doing testing and stuff. And there's not as much room for experimentations at some levels of that. You hope that the creatives in charge are driving that and that everybody else can sort of work within a pipeline. And as a, as a person whose primary responsibility was doing things like pinning up storyboards and, you know, and, and literally at the time they would, with a video camera, film each storyboard for 10 seconds as a piece of footage to put into their Avid software to cut together story reels. Um, and this is in 2005. And so I felt that it was absurd that we weren't using more digital things and more and scanning things or being able to do more. So I was very, I had this frustration of what my job was supposed to be and who I could voice this opinion to because I was a PA, which was the lowest paid position you could be there. And I really saw an opportunity for what they could be and I thought should be doing with their storyboard system and with their editorial system. And uh, what I really liked, uh, at least what animation provided, was an environment where there weren't lots of super strong egos. And it made it easier for me to speak up in that scenario until... I, you know, I said we should have a digital pipeline. It would save all these things. It would save this kind of time. It would do these things. And in the end, they just sort of said, well, then, like, fine, like, prove it. Like, but the proving it time meant doing the job both ways for a while. And what was great is that I could stay late for a few hours and scan the entire movie into our computer and so we suddenly had that and could do digital animatics and could do all these things that we weren't doing at the time and it was a lot of fun to work with the editors from that perspective because they weren't able to do something new and uh inviting people into a problem that you see uh was was really what helped me overcome that challenge of being afraid to speak up and afraid to challenge the way these seasoned people did something. Um, and luckily that kicked off uh, more and more people seeing me as artistic there uh, because, you know, I came out of the gate hoping that I would get to go be a filmmaker or a visual effects artist or whatever it was somewhere and found myself doing, you know, being, finding a lot of humility in my, uh, my new job. And so uh, 
I think that it was recognizing that, uh, goodness, I am just rambling on this one <laughs> as well, but uh, being able to voice uh, voice your ideas to people in a way that is unthreatening was really, really important uh, step of getting out of that rut. That's fantastic. Yeah. I sometimes have that struggle myself. <laughs> I can be a little direct sometimes, you know? It's important to be direct and it would be important overall for it to be more normalized that people can, uh, you that you can say what you think and you can say what you need, or you can say when you're being squeezed or you can say when, um, something is too much for you or something is not interesting enough for you because I think as if the more we connect with each other as humans below whatever industry it is, the more, the, the better that we can serve each other, uh, either at your company or your job or the team that you work on. It's worth sharing all of those opinions and things because whatever you have to hold on to on top of whatever you're being asked to perform or, you know, output, uh, that's stressful. <laughs> and uh, let's, I think we should normalize communication. And so it's less frightening for people who come after us. Super, super words of wisdom. <laughs> so are you ready for the rapid fire round? Oh, sure. Why not? Let's rapid fire. What's the best advice you ever got? Uh, the best advice I ever got was probably from my dad, who who told me that whatever I decided to do in life to try to become indispensable to somebody. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I don't mean it in the, in the most like Machiavellian sense, but it was, but that, that thought was in my head a lot through, uh, through college and through uh, the first days of working at DreamWorks was like, you, you know, my dad was amazing in that, you know, he's always believed that I was uh, talented at what I did. And so he said, like, that's not, but that's not what, like, telling me how, how great I am as, you know, as your dad or whatever wasn't as important as saying, like, make sure that someone knows that you can do something that no one else can, whatever it is. And that's just, you know, him not knowing exactly what it is that I do down to the, you know, detailed level just says, like, let's keep on doing something that other people don't do. And that's been really inspirational because it's, uh, I've, I feel like I've continued to do that, even if it was subconsciously is just wanting to do something that stood out in any way, which is, yeah, what, what do we all artists hope to, <laughs> to do? Plus it helps to make your own job security. <laughs> Definitely. How about the worst advice you ever got? Oof. I think the, I don't know if I could pin it to one uh, specific person, but um, I do think some of the worst advice you can get is, like, is from anybody who believes that you can only do something one way. Or if somebody says, you know, like, go ahead and, and try it that way. That's not the way that we do things. Um, and so it, it's basically anyone who will, whoever uses the term, the real world at you, like, you know, again, <laughs> run, like if they say like, like, but once you get out there in the real world, 
that's not how it is going to work. You'll see. And so, yeah, that's not it's not a specific uh, worst piece of advice, but um, it's a but that's a, that's one that I, I like to think of often. Nice. You've already kind of answered the next one, but what pieces of it? software do you use on the regular oh i use uh so my my hub is always uh, adobe after effects i love being in there i'm comfortable with it and what i like about it is that you are the image that you're going to output is right there in front of you so what i see is what i'm going to put out to the world and i really enjoy that part of it um, i also work a lot with cinema 4d to do all of the 3D elements that I need to do for something. And working at Maxon now and working really closely with the Maxon training team has been really exceptional because I suddenly have access to people whose knowledge and skills are so far beyond mine that I can use all of that experience to try to to bring to life some stupid idea that I have, because I'm really interested in the idea having life somewhere. A trainer will be really interested in teaching me how to do that. And as a combination and as a whole team, there are a lot of really cool things that I think that uh, we can do, which is really fun. So After Effects and Cinema 4D. And uh, yeah, between those two, I feel like I can take on the world. <laughs> So what are the most common mistakes or pitfalls that you see aspiring VFX artists make and how can they avoid them? Ah, uh, yes. So I think one mistake that you can make is watching a tutorial and then being completely having no curiosity about what you could learn from the tutorial that is not just the thing it presents. So if your reel is full of a bunch of, uh, in, in my world, in After Effects or compositing, if your reel is full of a bunch of examples that were on video co-pilot or directly came from a, a some MoGraph lesson that you had somewhere, you, you'll become very bland in the landscape of your work that is visible. I'm not saying that it's not important to try those things out or to try to mimic what somebody is doing. Uh, I think that mimicry is a very important part of the process. But if you're not curious about what could push that further and exploring something even a little bit further, uh, if you stay on, yeah, if you stay on paths all your life, you will be on little paths all your life. And so it is really up to you to decide if you do want to forge something new or create something interesting that is unique to you or speaks to your voice as opposed to just following along. And and if it's not a desire to you, that is absolutely fine. That is fantastic advice because we do always see when we're hiring those same like five or six pieces, <laughs> you know, over and over and over again. So yeah, people need to kind of take what they learned and think of new ways to apply it. I 100% agree. Have you ever felt stuck and how did you overcome it? My goodness, I feel stuck on the regular. Um, I do have uh, ADHD, which, it, which means that I can be 
you know, without leading on it as a crutch, I can become so intensely focused on one thing that I really want finished that it will become the most important thing in my world. And as soon as I hit a roadblock where something about it becomes uninteresting to me, or I just happen to have a sleep cycle that knocks out that momentum that I had, I can completely drop a project forever, even if it was intensely important to me the day before. And it's been a real challenge. Um, one of the ways that, one of the things that has been the most helpful, uh, and I've said it a bunch, is the more people you work with and the more people you know uh, that are aware of what you're interested in working on and stuff, the more you can get some reinforcement from your friends or family about what you're trying to do. And that can be really important. Um, if you don't have friends and family close by that do that, then online has been really nice uh, for me to do that. So sometimes I will share something as an unfinished project online and it's possible that people's comments about it will make me inspired to try to take it up and finish it again. And sometimes if I'm stuck on a project, it just disappears into a folder and I shall never speak of it again. Mm -hmm. um, I have a folder of over a hundred action movie kid videos that are filmed. I know what I would want to do with them, but they, they're not sparking the that joy and excitement that I had about the ones that I have completed. And so uh, luckily I have the advantage of when I get stuck on something, I literally move on to something else as quickly as I possibly can. Ironically, the next question is, how do you finish stuff? <laughs> how do I finish stuff? Dang it. Um, it is really difficult. Um, Ooh, this is a this is a fun one. I either I, I my entire online making of little visual effect things is that I either absolutely need to finish something and I will release it when it is good enough to I think as I've 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 said before on something I don't remember what but that I want my work to at least make you like sitting on the toilet to go. <laughs> <laughs> so as like so that's if if that's the response that I at least need then your work can be done a lot sooner if you can realize that letting it go if if the idea was to complete it just get it out there and get it done don't there's no use perfecting something that will be seen on a phone screen in my case if you're doing something more you know fine art or whatever I understand that it, could, it might be very difficult to get through a difficult product project but um i finish stuff when i have other people working with me on it for the most part so i finish action movie kids when i have my wife working with me i finish vfx and chill episodes when i have seth worley working with me and michael zlapsky um but uh i i do need uh, some kind of external pressure to finish something otherwise i'm very very good at starting lots and lots of things I agree. I built a system for myself that has tremendous amounts of external accountability. And that is the uh -huh. only times I finish things to and actually like post them on ArtStation, which is where I consider it to be like the library of only things that I'm not doing anymore. Uh -huh. uh, whereas I put so much unfinished stuff on social media, it's not even funny. And it's amazing. It's it's so <laughs> worth people seeing that part of the journey. I think that it's mm -hmm. important. And I also like that the way that you put it out there is is very clearly associating 
that work and whatever stage it's at with you and what you're feeling about it at the time. And it's that that's amazing. I think that is really worth people getting to know the artist alongside the art. And you're exceptional at doing that. I I, I like to hide a lot uh, behind just trying to put out stuff or letting letting my children do the uh, the cuteness for me or something like that. So <laughs> totally, yeah. Um, you know, you touched on something, and I'll turn it into a rapid question. But do you think that being able to act right away on your impulse to create is key? I absolutely do. Um, for uh, you know. Partly, uh, you know, a, a, it, it's my condition to, if I get excited about something, I will have that enthusiasm um, until I, until I don't. And so, it, I feel that once I have an idea that I want to get done, it'll be really hard to think about anything else if it's the most inspirational thing, even if it's something very, very stupid. Um, but uh, I find that. The creative impulse is really worth trying to exercise if you can. And there are a lot of complications that come up with schedules when you are trying to create a, you know, a logical schedule around creative impulses. It's really, really difficult to predict when you will feel the most productive and when you will feel uninspired. And for me, it's just sheer volume it helps me overcome there being many gaps where I'm not doing something. But uh, if I don't get to act on an impulse that I had to make some silly video right then, uh, it often can be lost. And uh, as, yeah, as I've mentioned several times before, it, it's been really important to me and my family to 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 have been able to put a label on this, uh, this kind of thinking, because, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to, you know, help raise a family and responsibly work and be a, you know, a legitimate part of our life, it's really important that everybody uh, can, can rebalance things if I want to act on that impulse. Otherwise, it is me literally walking around grumpy that I'm not working on something else when I'm sitting around my family. And that is, that's very silly. Yeah, that's not good at all. Um, I have a bad habit of getting really excited about an idea and then procrastinating to start on it. And mm. by the time I start on it, I've lost the spark, you know? So that's my thing that I'm working on. Or I'll like micromanage the project. I'm like, I'm going to start a Pinterest board and like five hours uh -huh. have gone by and I'm tired, you know? That can be, um, there are so many step. there are so many things you can do to procrastinate so the beginning many. of a project too, even when you're really excited about it. Yeah. What Like once you've thought of an idea or something like that, uh, I know that it sounds like you used to dive into lots of backstory for a character design or anything like that, but is that, can that happen in your mind when you are between initial, like if you decided, like we'll use characters for an example, but if you decided you wanted to create a character like what does it usually start with is it something visual or do you or is it this the the story behind that character or their world or does it start with visual and then you can flesh out stuff even before you get to actually do anything um, it's a little bit of both so i think in pictures a lot um mm -hmm. and so i'll think of a character i'll start putting together the the visage so to speak of it and the world will come 
too, you know, and sometimes it's stuff that I don't expect, uh -huh. um, you know, th stuff that doesn't go together and I'll just roll with it. Um, cause I have this thing and I've never met somebody else who has it or has noticed that they have it, but my brain looks on the inside. It looks like an AI generating images all the time, <laughs> but like 17 at the same time. And they're like noise. Imagine just noise in your brain all the time. And then there's the main picture oh, that you're actually thinking about, you know? And all this stuff, it leaks in and it can be super crazy, unusual things that you, you wouldn't think about things that I never think about, you know, it's totally random. It has nothing to do with anything. Sometimes I like to uh, try to see if I'm psychic by, by using these noises. I'm like, okay, I, I'll tell somebody, think of a color and I'll like try to see which color shows up in the pictures. Well, amazing. It's weird. I've never met anybody that does that. I, I used to think it was normal <laughs> anyway. Um, so it all comes together in a picture and then I can put words to the picture and then more pictures come with the words and so on. Uh, that's my process. And then of course, if I plan on making it for real, I'll go and find reference and more inspiration somewhere like Pinterest, which can be a huge time dilation moment, you know, where next thing you know, you spent hours looking at pictures <laughs> of something mildly related. How long can something like that live in your head before you need to put something down on paper for it? I guess it depends on how close I am to paper. I'm always close to paper, you know, but. Um, Good. That's another, that's a great tip is to always be close to your, uh, yeah. if possible, be close to your tools and, of creation. And if you look at my notebooks, like they're all yes. drawn, like, look at this one. Like, what is that? Look at it. You know, <laughs> what is that? Who are these? I don't know, but like even like just dumb little drawings, I'll I'll make them, you know, just to see something comes out. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll always try to be near papers so that it comes out, and, and then it'll just be like a little crappy drawing, but it'll it'll at least become a memory. You know, mm -hmm. I'll go through these and I'll be like, oh crap, yeah, I remember that, and it'll spark it again. Oh, you that's know? cool. Um, <laughs> these are all during meetings normally. <laughs> that's the best time to think, really. Right. I'm like, this could have been an email. Let's doodle. <laughs> um, the last question is something you touched on because you're also psychic and you always know which the oh, question yeah. is next. Um, how do you, so you, how do you balance your career, your art passion, your hobbies, your family and all of that stuff? Uh, not well <laughs> is, is the best answer to that. Honestly, um, the, I have found that uh, this year in particular has been one of the best uh, years of uh, being able to, and it's the advice I keep on sharing throughout the thing, being able to communicate um, what my needs are from this, uh, from this, I, I hate saying it, from my artistic, these artistic uh, needs that I have uh, and figuring out how to balance those out with, uh, with family time and with, uh, you know, with the, you know, deadlines at work, et cetera. Um, I found that, you know, that talking more to my wife, my children, uh, people around what I'm interested in doing uh, at work, speaking to my boss or coworkers about things that I'm, that I hope to accomplish, uh, the more that I've been able to solidify what I'm after doing by sharing my ideas with people around me, 
um, the more I'm able to balance all of these things together. And I think it's because um, there, there's an easy tendency to uh, not want to share how much work you have when you're dealing with your family or not uh, be too distracted by something going on with your family when you're trying to do work stuff. And, and those are just the, you know, two large states you can exist in on top of your creative impulses, which may live completely separately from either. I'm lucky enough that my creative impulses get to touch both my life at work and my life at home. And the, it's really important to communicate with the humans around you a lot, just so you can uh, find that balance with all of them. Because you can you can either decide that you're all on a team together, or you can be you know on your own and uh, and probably a little crotchety. And uh, and those are the two states that I exist in. That's absolutely wonderful. Because I ask this to every guest, mostly because I have no balance in my life. You know, I'm naturally a workaholic. And lately I've been feeling like that's not the way I should live. It's, it's really difficult because I would, I could imagine that, uh, because if you asked me like the answer to like, what is the most important thing to be doing right now? It, it might be all of them or whatever, like whatever it is, uh, you know, it, I, I want to be a, you know, great artist with independent work that is getting recognized online. I want to be a great worker for my company and knocking stuff out. And I want to be an awesome dad and husband and all of those things separately. And in the end, you know, there's a, it's not that they are mutually exclusive, but they are, they do require a great deal of balancing to try to make something like that happen. And so uh, I have, I have not found the perfect balance in life at all, but the more I've communicated, the much more I've felt secure in not letting my life spin horribly out of balance because I have found it. I have, uh, I have easily let work, uh, or doing some creative project be a, this internal pressure that can build into this resentment and like unfulfilled thing that, uh, that makes me very terribly unfun to be around and so uh i would like to be less of that uh because yeah it's it's easy to have an ideal version of what you think you are and uh be able to to face what what other people believe that you are too well that's a great note to end on thank you so much hashi for taking a little time off of your weekends and coming over here to talk to me and to our audience uh hashi where Absolutely. can they find you uh, you can find me. Uh, you can see the Action Movie Kids YouTube channel. Uh, just look up Action Movie Kids on YouTube and you'll find us. Uh, you can follow me at Action Movie Dad on uh, Twitter. That's where uh, I've, I've, I, I love hanging out even, even these days. Um, and we also have the uh, uh, same Instagram name, Action Movie Kids. Uh, but uh, one of the most direct ways you can get in contact with me is to watch my weekly show with Seth Worley called VFX and Chill. It's on the Red Giant YouTube channel. It also broadcasts live to Maxon and its affiliate channels every Friday at 10. And the show is a, an improvisational visual effects challenge, and it's really fun to have people come see and interact with it live because we could, we do the stupidest 
most lovely stuff, uh, including creating the the Butt with Raptors uh, <laughs> Twitter account, which is you know do yourself a favor and you know take a few minutes some sometime and just uh, you know enjoy the the true artistry at work there. My favorite was the Christmas Raptor, the little Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer oh, Raptor. Yes. <laughs> That was cute. I also showed that one to my husband. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks again to our sponsor today, Ringling College of Art and Design's VR department. You can find me at Anna Carolina underscore art on every social media platform imaginable. Okay, that's A-N-A-C-A-R-O-L-I-N-A underscore A-R-T. Um, and you can also find me streaming ZBrush and character art content on the Maxon Actually, I'm not sure if it's... I, I took a little break, so they changed the name, I think. It used to be the Pixelogic YouTube channel. So if you still search Pixelogic on YouTube, you will find it. It's called ZBrush Live. And it's the official channel. Amazing. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, I'm coming back from my break, I guess. So thank you all so much. And by the way, if you're enjoying this podcast, we have other episodes. Please Subscribe to the YouTube channel. We can You can find us on Spotify and Apple Music. Leave us a like. Leave us a comment. Tell us what your favorite part was, what you, else you want to hear, what questions you want me to be asking our guests, who you want to see on the podcast, and share it with your friends and family and people in the VFX and 3D industries because every bit helps so that we can keep bringing you awesome guests. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, Hashi. Thank you, Anna. Bye.